0: We are starting today with some very scary moments on the downtown east side of Vancouver. Is anybody in there? Is anybody in there? Is anybody in there? That was someone yelling to burning tents. This happened on Sunday around Maine and Hastings. Multiple propane tanks were discovered. Thankfully, Vancouver fire crews made short work of that fire. But joining us now to talk more about this and the dangers of these types of fires is Karen Fry, Fire Chief with Vancouver Fire and Rescue. Chief Fry, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Jill.
0: Can you tell us a little bit, uh, that was audio that was uh, from a video that shows a tent that's on fire a bit off in the distance on the sidewalk. What were crews confronted with? What What were they responding to when they were called to this fire?
1: Yeah, so fortunately, uh, we have a real close proximity to a fire hall in the downtown east side. The moment uh, we came out of our apparatus bays, we could see the heavy black smoke. Uh, you know, multiple tents were impacted. Uh, large propane tanks were discovered. The building that this tent that these tents were against was now impinged and, uh, the fire had spread to the building as well. So quite chaotic of a scene. As you know, there's lots of people living and, and moving around the downtown east side. And so, you know, there's a lot of danger, uh, to, to those residents and to that community. At this point,
0: do you know if there were any injuries?
1: Uh, We weren't reported on any injuries. Uh, Fortunately, it happened when it was still daylight. If this had happened at nighttime when people were inside that tent sleeping, Uh, the the outcome may have been uh, devastating. Uh, you mentioned propane tanks,
0: and the number I saw was that at least seven propane tanks were found in the area, and, and one larger one as well. Um, do you know what caused the fire? And, and I want to talk a bit more about the danger of having that many propane tanks. But uh, do you know? Do you know at this point, or is there a, a, a working theory on how the fire was started?
1: Yeah, it appears to us that the fire started uh, inside the tent or inside one of the tents, and. And what we would cause is accidental in nature, probably from discarded smoking material that then uh, went onto the sleeping devices or their makeshift beds. And, and from that point, it just expanded greatly. And we know that, that when tents begin to catch fire with all of the combustible materials inside of them and the tent itself, uh, they spread very quickly.
0: And does the tent fabric, are, are those, are, are tent fabrics generally treated or, or they're very combustible, like you said, or once that kind of fabric catches, it burns very quickly?
1: It, they burn very quickly. It's like a nylon type of base and it, it's almost like having a shrink wrap or a saran wrap on it. And the propane tanks
0: themselves. Then, and I, I would imagine people are using these tanks for warmth, maybe for cooking in some scenarios. But what are the dangers when you have a fire like that and you have propane
1: tanks in the tents? Well, gosh, I, I, I'm so concerned about the amount of propane tanks. We are we are removing upwards of dozens a day from the downtown east side, and, and people are using them. And in, in all respect, that people are trying to keep themselves warm, but propane and uh, gas. We actually saw uh, gasoline canisters on at this site as well. Uh, they they are meant to 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 oh gosh, I'm just trying to think. It's just so disturbing to me. But the, they will explode, and they are combined to a cooking device with a, a rubber type of hose. What happens is uh, once heated up, it expands. There's a release valve that goes. Uh, but that can catch fire, and what we would cause uh, call a blevy, which is a major explosion, can happen. We saw uh, the hundred pound tank was uh, burnt and is charred from this scene, so it we are very fortunate it didn't explode. We found ones last week on Hastings Street that were impacted by a fire that where we heard there were explosions, and it actually damaged another building as well.
0: And does it also put, obviously, people living in the tents and close to the tents are at danger if those tanks explode. Does it also put firefighters in danger when they're responding and trying to get them away from the heat?
1: Exactly. It, it's not only the residents within the tent or the occupants of the tent. It's not only the buildings and the buildings where there people may be living in these buildings or just the buildings themselves. But additionally, any responders and our firefighters who are going in uh, in to put out a fire, an explosion uh, can cause a catastrophic uh, effect to those responders as well as any of the other people on the streets.
0: I understand
1: in this fire
0: as well, there was damage to uh, at least one of the buildings. How extensive do you know was the damage to the buildings that were right next to these tents?
1: Yeah, I I haven't been down there yet. I'll be going down later this evening to have a look at it. Uh, From what I've seen, it did cause quite a bit of damage. It was an outcrop or a canopy above these tents, and the fire got into that and into the walls. Fortunately, our firefighters are very good at putting out fires. We had a lot of resources on scene in a quick amount of time, and they could uh, put that fire out uh, relatively quickly, but we were there for several hours.
0: I know it wasn't that long ago that you uh, had ordered the removal of tents for exactly this reason, that they're they're dangerous, again, to to the neighbourhood, to the buildings, and to the people that are living in the tents, who are near the tents. Uh, that did get a lot of pushback. There are still a lot of tents in that neighbourhood, in other neighbourhoods as well. Uh, so what do you do at this point if, if this is continuing to happen? We have seen injury in the past, thankfully not in this most recent fire, but what do you do as the fire chief? chief, then to deal with this?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we just keep putting on pressure. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate all the work that the city has been doing. The engineering staff are, are dedicated. They're down there every day uh, trying to work towards an order. Uh, we need to, to make a difference. We need to enforce the fire chief's order. I think what we're seeing is, you know, it's a really fine line. It's a balancing act, uh, trying, you know, the vulnerable populations that's that are down there and I'm not going to solve homelessness and that's not what this is about. This really is about trying to keep those people, the people in the buildings, and the responders safe. And we need to keep pushing at it and and people need to, to act a bit quicker.
0: Is there a push as well? And, and I know we touched on this, but the, the reasons why somebody would have a propane tank, it's understood if it's for heat, if it's for cooking, and, and you can understand why, even given the danger and, and why it would be ill-advised to do that. Uh, but is, is there a, a push to remove propane tanks from these tents or to try and make it so there aren't as many of them?
1: Yes, every day, uh, and that's part of our order, every day uh, the city's engineering staff goes down and they are removing uh, propane tanks from the street. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is a lot of people are keeping the propane tanks within their tents, and, uh, and, and we've seen propane heaters inside tents. So now not only do you have a risk of an explosion of a fire, but now you also have a risk of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and so, if, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. And so far this year, we've had four injuries related to uh, the downtown east side encampment fires, and one death that whether may or may not be attributed to it.
0: And a, a death from the fire or from carbon monoxide poisoning.
1: We're not sure yet. The coroner's going to make that determination, but that was the individual that was found deceased inside the tent last week. Uh,
0: because that was the individual, it was a bit cryptic, and in in, we were told this individual died before the fire started, but, but it was unclear exactly what had happened.
1: Correct. Yeah, correct. So it'll be up to the coroner, but it could be there was a propane heater inside that tent.
0: So it's possible
1: that was a carbon monoxide poisoning? quite possibly it could have been a drug overdose it could have been natural causes or it could have been carbon monoxide or or it could have been suspicious in nature the coroner will have to kind of uh determine that all right and and moving
0: forward then what do you do then as far as continuing obviously to respond when there are calls like this but it's got to be frightening knowing that there still are so many tents that have those propane tanks and heaters in them
1: yeah i think at this point uh you know i need to to continue to to call on the action of the city and the province to 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 make this better to reduce the impact of these and to uh adhere to the fire chief's order and and the order isn't done, done in lightness it is done because there really is a risk and we are continually seeing a risk and increased fires over last year so it's not going away the efforts that we've been doing are not necessarily making it any safer in the downtown east side until the chief's order is uh, followed up with, until we remove those tents, until we remove the propane, and until we remove those combustibles from against the building.
0: All right, Chief Karen Fry, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you. We talked about this briefly when Metro Vancouver first announced plans were in the works to create a new $40 million park and campground on one portion of Bowen Island. Well, now that the public consultation portion of that project is coming to a close, there are many concerns that have been raised by residents of Bowen Island. Joining me now to talk more about this is longtime Bowen Island resident Marion Bunches. Thank you so much, Marion, for being here to talk about this today. Thank you for having me. I remember talking about this when it was first announced, I think about eight months ago, and it's this idea of a new $40 million campground and park on Bowen Island. The public feedback portion of this is coming to an end, and I know there have been some concerns raised by residents of Bowen Island. Can you talk a little bit about this park and what some of those concerns are from the island's point of view?
2: Uh, Yes. Um, I mean... Everybody has a different opinion, of course, um, and there, you know, there's several, several uh, sort of factions. But I think that uh, almost everybody is mostly concerned, or, or or certainly uniformly concerned, about getting to the island. And um, it's not that, uh, you know, it's not that we don't want people to come here, or that we want to keep it all to ourselves. It's that we've got a very, very serious problem, um, in, in terms of access. So we're an island and we have one point on and one point off. And that goes through the cove, which is our little village. And I call it the triple bottleneck of, um, Horseshoe Bay, then the ferry, and then our cove. So, um, already in the summertime, you know, we've had quite a bit of, um, uptick in visitors for the past few years basically since covid and uh, so already in the summertime um the ferries are are just in, insane and uh or the you know the ferry access i call it the madness <laughs> um <laughs> you know the just the trying to get through that system um so um it's it, uh, you know you're looking at uh, two ferry weights at least and um you know there are certain times of day when it's you know of course very uh, uh very congested and um and we have i think this you know the main thing is that we have um a lot of people on the island who commute to vancouver we're the closest island to vancouver and so commuting um has so far been you know viable for people and um when the when the uh the ferry traffic becomes you know virtually impossible when the the um uh the lineups you know when people have to have to wait 2 to 3 hours in order to get off the island or to get home they just can't do that you know and so if if we add a significant number of um you know visitors to that system those people who commute honestly will not be able to continue living on the island they'll have to leave as will as will people who um you know who go to who go to Vancouver for medical things you know who regularly need to go to Vancouver it would fundamentally change the fabric of this island like if those if those commuters left um you know we would end up being a summer tourist town uh that the only people who could live here would be retirees people who work from home uh people who work in the tourist industry and people who work in the construction industry and it would just it would just really really um it would it would destroy the community that we have and that's the thing that we're most concerned about we also have uh we you know we have road problems the roads are you know two lanes only we have no shoulder uh, on the road, or or very little, so cycling is 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 difficult um, you know cyclists come over and they 're you know going i mean it 's very steep because it 's a it 's an island that goes up the hill and it goes down the other side, and they 've got you know traffic piling up behind them, and then people getting impatient and going around them and you know, we worry that uh, one of these days somebody impatient is is going to go around them at the wrong time. There'll be a car coming from the other direction, and the person who's going to get killed is a cyclist. So it's 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 just not um, you know it's not it's not it's not set up for that. Now we are working on a multi-use path. But that goes only a very short way um, up the hill from the cove, and we recently got um, a government grant for $500,000 to extend that path, and with that money, that path is going to be extended 500 meters that's a thousand dollars a meter to build this multi-use path. So, um, and that you know, and that would, uh, and there's still another um, you know five kilometers to go to get to the other side of the island. So it's going to be a long time and a lot of money before we are set up for you know that kind of traffic on the other side of the island. So it's it's just it's you know, it's a logistical, it's a logistical nightmare. And, um, and that's our main concern. We're, you know, we're just, we're just worried that our sort of, you know, just barely functioning system in the summertime. In the winter, it's fine. In the winter, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to get on and off the island. But um, in the summer, it's, it's crazy, and so we're just really worried that, that it's going to have a, an, uh, an oversized factor. On, on our community
0: when you look at the um, the Metro Vancouver proposal for this and when it breaks down what the campsite area would look like as far as the number of day use picnic areas uh, the number of tent cabins and, and general camping areas uh, the the proposal by Metro Vancouver is really downplaying vehicle access saying that there would be yes there would I think it was 35 accessible drive-in tent sites but they're really pushing this idea that people would take transit or there would would be a shuttle bus set up to bring people from the ferry to the campground and that that would cut down on individual car trips. So what are your thoughts on that and how that has really been pushed as part of this project?
2: Uh, my thoughts on that are that if people can drive they will and um, you know you can you can say oh you know get on a bus in the city and take that you know the <laughs> The, uh, whatever it is, half hour, 45 minute ride from downtown Vancouver to Horseshoe Bay and then, um, you know, and then get on the ferry and so on and so forth. Um, to go camping, uh, you know, it's one thing to do it if you're just going to go for, um, go for day use to the park. But, you know, if you've got, if you've got kids and you've got camping gear and you've got to lug your food and the whole thing, nobody is going to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, the same with, you know, bicycles and pedestrians, we have that same problem. And then the other thing about our whole, um, you know, the, the triple bottleneck of our, of our system is that the Cove is a madhouse, um, when the ferry comes. So I mean as I say it's our it's our main little village it's we've got uh, you know we've got our grocery store and and uh you know various businesses on one side and a park on the other side and um and you know there's just this one road that acts both as vehicle access parking for businesses and the ferry lineup uh, so ferry coming off and ferry lining up to go back on. And then we've got people coming down, picking up and dropping off people. And we've got our own buses coming down, picking up and dropping off people. And we've got pedestrians and people walking off the ferry, you know, walking around. <laughs> and it's like there's just nowhere left to, um, you know, to to park a shuttle and pick people up and drop people off. Um so, uh I I do have a I have proposed a plan to to um uh parks and they seem a little bit interested in it. They they have actually reached out and want to talk to me more about it. Um I talked to them about it in person when they did their open house here. Um and that is that uh there are you know there are a couple of times in the morning where it might be possible to get um, bus- uh, a couple of buses through. And so they're talking shuttle, I'm talking buses. Shuttles, you know, are the little are the little mini buses that carry 12 people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about, a, um, you know, like a big bus that's uh, like a coach. It carries 50 people. Um, so I have this idea that, to get to the uh to get to the park you would you would have this entire experience of um you know you get on the bus in Vancouver you know wherever it is they want to uh allocate that and um the say there's i don't know how many buses it would be i think it would be you know four total two on one ferry two on another and that And that bus brings you all the way through. You get on the bus in Vancouver, you get off the bus at the park. So that mitigates our, um, uh, you know, we don't have billions of cars trying to go through that system. We don't have, um, uh, you know, cars, billions of cars, well, not billions, obviously, but um, hundreds or possibly thousands of cars, you know, driving uh, through the island. It's just like buses at a particular time of day. And the bus driver knows how to navigate through the system because it's quite complicated knowing where to go to get on the Bowen Ferry, knowing where to go when you get off the ferry, so on and so forth. So they would know the system. I call it, it's like a bullet. It shoots right through the system at the right time of day and takes them straight to the park. And they get off and they have their nature experience in the park and then at the end of the day or if they're camping at the end of their stay they get back on the bus and it shoots them right through the system again at the right time of day when the ferry traffic is low and gets them back into Vancouver and i think that would be and that, you know and a coach bus has room underneath you know it's got it's got storage space for all of people's gear so they would you know they wouldn't have to lug it anywhere they would park wherever this happens in Vancouver and they'd put their stuff in the bus they'd get on the bus and they'd um and they'd arrive in their nature destination and you know there's no need to go to the cove in Vancouver and go to restaurants that's a different that's a different trip if you want to go to nature and go to camping i think that could work it's not it's not a hundred campsites. That's what that's what um Metro Vancouver wants. And no, it would probably be more like twenty campsites. Um but I you know, I, I that's the only thing I can think of that works. Other people have talked about uh passenger ferries going to a different location on the island. You know, there's some spots that, you know, could potentially uh be turned into a an offloading place for passengers you know there are various various people for and against that idea um, but you know that would be extremely expensive and um you know taking on a whole taking on a whole transportation system for metro vancouver and i don't i don't think they can afford it
3: right. <laughs> and
2: i don't think um i i, I don't think it's going to happen for various reasons
0: We are talking with Marianne Banshees, a Bowen Island resident, and talking about a Metro Vancouver proposal for a park and campground. And Marianne, we just have a few moments left, but wanted to ask you about the consultation process, and how has that been?
2: Um, There has been a big problem in that um, this was sprung on Bowen Islanders. There was a bunch of, uh, shall we say, secret negotiation uh that went on between Metro Vancouver and our former council um, last year, uh that went on for I don't know, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, what is that? Six months before we found out anything. And most Bowen Islanders found out that it was happening by um, by Metro Vancouver making an announcement, like it sort of came over the news and we were all like, what? <laughs> and, um, and so the the process has been quite soured from the get-go. And then, so then it was like another, um, you know, it, that was announced in August. Bowen Islanders freaked out. And, um, you know, and there was also a lot of, uh speculation we haven't had a lot of information from them until until February of this year and and then you know and then it's very sort of sudden um like between February 27th when they gave their first um official presentation to the council and uh March 20th is that right yeah so that's less than a month of public consultation for something that could fundamentally change the fabric of this island. And we were not pleased. <laughs> so, and we still are having a really hard time getting information out of them. Or, or, you know, we have many, 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 many questions. And, um, and uh and and they don't have any answers yet, so they really jumped the gun and um and they and they and they have you know they have plans for this sudden part, but they they don't have viable plans for everything else and um uh so it's been it's been very fraught over here on the island, and um uh yeah <laughs> so so we haven't been at all pleased with the process um but as i say i'm I'm quite heartened that uh that Metro has you know reached out to me i know you know I, I, and i and I think they're getting the message i'm hoping that um I'm hoping that things will go better in the future, but uh you know we'll see we'll see.
0: Well, the liquidation sales at Nordstrom stores right across this country will begin tomorrow. That has been confirmed by a spokesperson with the department store chain. And that also comes from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, which has given the U.S. retailers Canadian branch permission to start selling off Its merchandise. So what went wrong and what can we expect with the liquidation getting underway? Joining us now to talk more about this is Craig Patterson, founder and publisher of the retail media site Retail Insider. Craig, thanks so much for being here.
3: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: before we go into the liquidation and what that will look like, when you look at Nordstrom being just the latest big American retailer to shut down Canadian operations, what is what is your thought on that? The, the fact that these retailers come in, I, I would think they've done some homework and they have a business plan, but then not too, too long after, close up.
3: It's really a shame. I mean, it does seem like such a waste, especially with the Vancouver store being so productive uh, versus the other ones in Canada. Um, it's, it's. I think it's a situation, among other things, where some American retailers just don't quite understand Canada, even though Canadians have been shopping at Nordstrom down in Seattle for years. Um, I think that the uh, stores weren't necessarily offering something that we didn't already have, and, and Canadians appear to be a little more loyal to retailers, even like Hudson's Bay, which may not be considered quite as good.
0: Uh, right, and that was one of the concerns, or maybe not a concern, but it was certainly part of the conversation when Nordstrom opened up in downtown Vancouver. Was how close it was to the Hudson's Bay, and how that Hudson's Bay store did seem to to ratchet things up a bit. It became a little bit more. It seemed to become a little bit more fancy.
3: Yes, yes, and already, I mean, um, the room had been in Hudson's Bay since about I think two thousand and twelve. So it's. Uh, uh, you know, that's a luxury department on the second floor for women and now men as well. But uh, no, Hudson's Bay definitely uh, upped its game, at least in downtown Vancouver. I think it could do lots more. But uh, Holt Renfrew certainly as well that expanded its store uh, with all kinds of luxury brands. And I think Holt Renfrew is uh, going to be the real winner in downtown Vancouver because it's, I think in 2022 it had a record-breaking year of sales of, I think, over $400 million.
0: Are the two comparable then if we look at Holt Renfrew and Nordstrom? and or Or is it really a different shopping crowd, a different client, in that one of the questions I was thinking was, well, how can whole Renfrew be so successful, but Nordstrom not?
3: Yeah, well, there is some crossover because the Vancouver Nordstrom store specifically has a lot of, well, until this weekend, had a lot of luxury brands located within. A lot of these shops shut down. But uh, uh, like Christian Louboutin, for example, a high-end footwear brand, uh, had a boutique at Nordstrom. It just shut down on Friday. Uh, it uh, has a shop inside of uh, Holt Renfrew as well. And there's other brands like that too. So um, the Vancouver Nordstrom store was particularly luxury heavy, but also had a much broader price range that would you know, be similar to what you'd see at the Hudson's Bay store as well. So Nordstrom was somewhere in between the two in terms of its price points, but Holt Renfrew has all the top brands uh, that people are looking for at that, that high-end price point. And even if the store doesn't appear to be that busy, uh, people are buying stuff and uh, it's doing gangbuster sales right now.
0: So no one's getting laboutines on liquidation prices at the Nordstrom?
3: No, no. uh, Those concessions have shut down. So there will still, of course, be brands uh, available at liquidation. But uh, some of those higher-end brands like Balenciaga, um, Del Vogue, Celine, uh, they've already shut down. And I don't think the beauty brands would be going on that liquidation sale. Don't hold me to that, but... I think that things are done a little bit different there with the the makeup brands and the beauty department.
0: Right. Okay. Um, When you talked about this, you mentioned that they they just don't know the Canadian market maybe as much as they think they do. Why why is there so much? And we saw it with Target. Why are we seeing these big American retailers miss the mark so much?
3: Uh, I think they need to do their homework and understand how we shop regionally. Again, I think Vancouver, Nordstrom did a pretty good job. I was in the store a few weeks ago, and it was... uh, Really, quite terrific. But uh, at the same time, uh, I found that I wasn't really a Nordstrom shopper. I bought a few pairs of shoes, but I didn't find the clothing was the style that I wanted. And I was just in the Hudson's Bay store, and I found all kinds of brands. Uh, and this is a downtown flagship, by the way, uh, not one of the suburban ones, which aren't really usually in good shape. But um, you know, brands like uh, uh, Sandro and uh, Ted Baker—these are brands that would attract me—and I didn't really see them at Nordstrom. So. Uh, I don't know if we shop a little bit more of it, you know, in downtowns anyways, is it with a European aesthetic, but I didn't find that Nordstrom had what I wanted, and oddly enough, Hudson's Bay and Holt Renfrew do.
0: Which I find interesting as well. I was talking to somebody even not too, too long after Nordstrom opened here. And she's somebody who who lives in the States, but is in Vancouver quite often and said she'd gone to the Nordstrom and found it disappointing in that it didn't have a lot of the brands, the same things that she was shopping for in the United States, in the, the Washington State Nordstrom, and which I thought was odd too, because she wasn't buying Latboutins or buying the super high end. It was that the kind of couple notches down. But again, it. It, it made me wonder who they thought the audience was, or who they thought the customers were, and 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 why they didn't they didn't have those brands that would bring those people back and turn them into Nordstrom shoppers.
3: That's right, and it's tough to for for a retailer coming into Canada to secure certain brands, even if it has that relationship in the United States. And we've seen this with Saxbeth Avenue as well, which has two stores in Toronto and one in Calgary. Um, The dominance of retailers, particularly like Holt Renfrew at the higher end, and then Hudson's Bay, which has a lot of brands in the mid-price range, uh, these retailers will do anything that they can uh, to ensure that the competition doesn't get the brands that they have in store. So, um, uh, one of the things I study is a little more in the luxury retail space. That's one of my areas of expertise. And... Um, I did see that even though Nordstrom in Vancouver, which had far more luxury brands than any than any other Nordstrom store in Canada, still was missing out on some of those really key brands that Holt Renfrew had, that uh, you know Chanel and a few others, Fendi. These these are brands which are very very hot right now and. Uh, Um, Nordstrom just didn't secure them. And I think part of it is, uh, I've seen this in the past, I can't say specifically with this situation, but uh, some of these successful retailers will say, well, you sell to these people here coming into the country, Well, we're not going to work with you. And this happened with Eaton's when Sears tried to revive it in 2000. um, Hudson's Bay came right out and said, you know, you can supply their eight stores, but you won't be supplying to our 89 stores anymore, or whatever it was at the time. Um, this is not an uncommon practice amongst retailers that are trying to maintain their own market share. So I think that Nordstrom and Saks Fifth Avenue have lost out a bit in Canada as a result. Saks was supposed to come into the Vancouver market, but just has not done so. And in- and we don't know if there'll be any stores in a few years here in Canada.
0: But do you think that given uh, Saks must be looking at this, though, and thinking, hmm, well, if they're not making a go of it, and if Holt Renfrew's already got this client base, is there room? Is there enough clientele here for something like a Saks Fifth Avenue to make a go of it?
3: I don't know. I don't think we would see Saks Fifth Avenue coming to the Vancouver market at this point. Um, it would have done so through the downtown store, and that's going to be revamped with a new strategy and an office tower above it. So... Uh, I don't think Saks Fifth Avenue is going to open any more stores in Canada, and uh, who knows what the future is going to be. There could be none in a few years or even sooner than that, but uh, I, I can't confirm anything technically at this point.
0: The news today as well, we're talking about the liquidation of Nordstrom and Nordstrom Rack in Canada. People will know that in the Vancouver location, there wasn't a Nordstrom Rack. Do you think that played into it?
3: Um, I don't know to a degree, I think a little bit, because Nordstrom's known for its twice a year sales. Whereas if you go across the street to Hudson's Bay, well, there's stuff on sale all the time. So the Nordstrom rack is removed. I know in downtown Toronto, there is one that's uh, a few subway stops north of the actual full price Nordstrom store. And it was doing OK, I think, in terms of sales. But um, you know, Nordstrom, I think, has to be careful with this, this the rack concept in terms of discounting, because I know a lot of people are going to be looking for a good price. I mean, Canadians, we are generally approval people, so uh, (laughs) stores like Winners and Marshalls absolutely thrive here. Uh, Nordstrom Rack was uh, stocking a lot of its product from its main stores, and I think that that was a bit of a challenge because there was a lack of consistency there. And also, I just heard anecdotally, and also even myself as a shopper, that people became disappointed with Nordstrom Rack because when these stores opened, they brought in all kinds of luxury brands and exciting stuff, and they just didn't seem to be there after. I visited one in downtown Toronto on the weekend, and the shoes were pretty bland. And uh, when I got in there, I was in Gucci and Prada when the store opened. It was quite exciting. And um, it's just boring shoes you'd find anywhere else, really.
0: Do you think the pandemic played into this as far as timing or is that more of a convenient excuse?
3: Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the pandemic certainly would have had an impact on sales at Nordstrom, as with most retailers. But Um, I I do think that Nordstrom was struggling even before the pandemic in Canada. Uh, I was seeing some brands that were pulling out. Uh, I had some sales numbers that were showing that some of the stores were not doing well. And we're actually in 2019, the Calgary store saw some fairly minor year over year declines. But that was a concern. Um, And that was actually the case for a few other stores as well. So, no, things were not good before the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely blame it a little bit, but uh, I, I also think Nordstrom honestly didn't try hard enough in Canada to uh, to, to get to the consumer. Uh, as a person who's a journalist myself and was uh, you know dealing with the, the press releases and uh, uh, at Nordstrom, I don't think it could have done such a better job getting to the, uh, you know, building loyalty in Canada. And I just don't think that it really tried that hard in that respect or it could have done a much better job.
0: Uh, so with the liquidation going ahead, what can people anticipate? We know that uh, it officially gets underway tomorrow. Is it the kind of thing where you think people will, uh, those who perhaps are looking for deals, are they going to go to the store tomorrow? Is that going to be the best time to do it? Or how will this look as they try and get rid of that merchandise?
3: Good question. I think it really depends. But with this liquidation, they may um, reduce prices gradually over time. So it's uh, they, they may start off at even like a 30% or something to start. This is more of a guess, maybe 30 to 40%. So yeah, if someone wants something now, um, go to the sales starting tomorrow if you think it's going to sell out and not be there. But if someone has their heart set on something at a lower price, it may be there at a lower discount later on as the days progress. But um, again, I don't. I'm not 100% sure if that's the way that it's going to work, but this is what I've seen with some other clearances as well. So, but again, just Vancouver being a, a busy city and a lot of people, I'm sure, are going to be coming to that store tomorrow because they know the sale is happening because it's all over the news. Um, some stuff may sell out quite quickly, even if it's not at the deepest discount that it could be. So. If you want it now, get it now, and if you're willing to wait, then risk you know take your take your chances. <laughs> I guess I would say
0: right. And and one other question, just about the space itself, because it is a huge space, and Nordstrom was the anchor uh, store, one of the anchor stores in Pacific Center. Uh, what do you think as far as the future of that space and the the potential of what what business might go there next?
3: Yeah, I think what uh, landlord Cadillac Fairview is going to do is it's going to. Uh, Quite possibly. I mean, I think we're going to see smaller retailers. We're not going to see another department store open there. Um, they may look to actually extend the uh, CF Pacific Centre Mall to have a hallway on this main floor going through the current main floor of Nordstrom. This will allow them to have some smaller stores in there that will pay more rent per square foot. So they may be able to recoup some costs, hopefully, because I think there's a lot of demand for, for retailers to move in there um the nordstrom building itself is an incredible opportunity because it's got three corners it takes almost an entire city block in downtown vancouver which is unprecedented well, almost anyways i mean hudson's bay is pretty big as well but um but, but having that three corners allows for three flagship stores to go up there um upstairs you might finally get the vancouver might get an Italy at some point maybe restoration hardware maybe will come into the market with a big store uh, like it has in Toronto. So it's, I think the world is the oyster for Cadillac Fairview in terms of what could go in there. Le Maison Simons, which has a store at Park Royal, of course, uh, I think he would be much better served, uh, and consumer be better served having it downtown. So if Simons can come up with the money, perhaps they would take the upper two floors, which would be about the right size. They're about 70,000 square feet each, and two of those would be 140,000 square feet. Simons would uh, thrive in a space like that, in my opinion. Same thing in downtown Toronto. So hopefully that'll happen, but... Uh, I don't know. I don't know their financial position currently, and I don't know if they would have the wherewithal, but for sure, I mean, I think this would be a good idea. Uh, it's a lot, one of the last big retailers standing in Canada that uh, has a reasonable amount of success at this time.
0: All right. Interesting times. Craig, we will leave it there, but thanks so much for joining the show.
3: Thank you for having me.